morning. My name is Lisa Cameron, and I'll be reading the scripture for you today from Colossians 3 and 4. Verse 18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, would you... Open the eyes of our heart to see your design for human relationships. In the midst of brokenness and how we've marred them, may we see your original intent. May we see your heart. May we see your design. And may we find in Christ the motivation to realign ourselves with your original heart's intent. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, families all across our country will be gathering together around Thanksgiving tables. And because American expats are all over the world, there will also be Thanksgiving meals taking place all across the globe this week. I know that from experience. When my family and I lived in England and in France and we're away from the rest of our family for Thanksgiving, we'd still get together with friends, with our neighbors, with our church family to celebrate Thanksgiving. Most of these Thanksgivings were introducing people to that holiday for the first time and to Thanksgiving food for the first time. Lynn, bless her heart, had to learn how to make absolutely everything for a Thanksgiving meal and do it not just once, but for multiple Thanksgiving meals in a week because we couldn't mix together all of our unbelieving friends and church family in just one gathering. It had to be several gatherings throughout the week. And to further complicate things, you can't get things like pumpkin spice or cranberry sauce living abroad. Uh, You either have to make it yourself somehow or try some European substitute that doesn't always work out, Or else scour the American sections of M&S and Waitrose in the vain hope that you will chance upon what you need. America seems uniquely blessed to be the only land overflowing with big bags of giant marshmallows. (laughs) Made to put on top of those sweet potato casseroles. You can't find that anywhere else, folks. And when we introduce our English and French friends to sweet potato casserole, you could tell it is a paradigm-shifting experience for them. There is a, what is this moment? You can have something sweet 
with the savory, and it is like mind blown in that moment. Lynn would blow their mind with Thanksgiving food first, and then we'd all settle around the table to have our minds expanded farther by hearing the story of Squanto and the first Thanksgiving. A story that really shows the providence and kindness of God in the midst of the strife and brokenness of the world. And it's fitting, really. It's fitting because usually around the Thanksgiving table, you find both things. You find reflections of God's kindness, but you also find the world's brokenness, relational brokenness. In a room this size, there are probably a good number of folks here who may be a bit apprehensive about sitting around the table at Thanksgiving this year. Yes, there's a lot of God's goodness and grace at work in the family to be thankful for, but there's also a fair bit of relational tension and brokenness around the table. There are short tempers and certain subjects you know you need to steer clear of. There's relational hurt. And you're wondering whether it will come to a boil this year or if it'll be swept under the rug at Thanksgiving. For those gathering around Thanksgiving tables with a lot of brokenness in the mix, I wonder just how much of that brokenness finds its cause in this. God has told us how family relationships work, but we haven't bothered to listen to him. God has told us how all our closest relationships work best, but we've ignored and dismissed all that he's had to say. How much of the brokenness in those lives, sitting around the table this Thanksgiving, can be traced back to a failure to live out the relational realities found in Colossians chapter 3. There is brokenness because we haven't engaged in relationships like God says here. We haven't lived according to God's design revealed in the Bible. And we all should know that when you ignore the manufacturer's clearly stated design, it makes sense when the thing breaks, doesn't it? I bet the answer to so much of the dysfunction and relational brokenness we see around us is found right here in the passage we're looking at this morning. This morning, I want you to see six fixes that God speaks into our broken relationships. These are six calls from God to reclaim his original design in the midst of the relational mess that we've made. There are six different relationships mentioned in our passage today. No one here fits into every role mentioned, but everyone here can learn something about God's design from each. The first of these six calls is addressed to wives, and I'll summarize it this way. Wives, do what is fitting in the Lord. Wives, do what is fitting in the Lord. Look at verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, because verse 18 is very controversial in our day and age, I'm going to try to speak very clearly and very carefully. And I've 
worded the heading very carefully. Wives, do what is fitting in the Lord. I'm going to try to apply what Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 9. Paul prayed that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here is some knowledge of God's will. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now we need to pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding in order to apply this knowledge of God's will properly. And I think Paul really helps us in verse 18 by tacking on this additional phrase, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This qualifier is intentionally placed there in verse 18 in order to prompt us to ask some questions and to apply some wisdom, some spiritual wisdom and understanding in applying the command. But before I talk about the qualifier, let me first acknowledge why this command is controversial. It's controversial in our day because without God's Spirit, we hear wives be subject to your husbands and we draw bent lines to false applications. Even with God's Spirit at work in us, we can still take false steps in applying a biblical truth, can't we? If we can jump to a false conclusion, who have the Spirit, the world definitely jumps to false conclusions without the Spirit's help. The world hears, wives, be subject to your husbands, and jumps to many bent conclusions. The world quickly assumes that this is a statement of value. A statement of value is being made here. That there is a different value between husband and wife. The person of lesser value, the world thinks, submits to the person of greater value. Isn't the implication being made here that wives are lesser than the husbands in God's eyes? Isn't that what God's saying? You can follow that bent line of reasoning, can't you? And it's just one of the bent lines. Unbelievers can hear verse 18 and falsely conclude that all women should submit to all men. But that is not what God says. Anywhere, nowhere in the Bible is such a statement made. But you can easily see how our sinful bent to twist things can make us arrive at that false conclusion. The world also hears a word like submission and immediately draws a bent line straight to selfishness and abuse and every dark and twisted thing. It shouldn't surprise us that's where people's minds go because without the Spirit guiding you, it's far easier to draw crooked lines than to draw straight ones, to jump to false conclusions than to true ones. The bent lines we draw from verse 18 go to places of gender inequality, places of selfish domineering, places of domestic abuse. But this is why the qualification, as is fitting in the Lord, is so important and is so helpful. The phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, can be taken in a couple of ways. 
First, fitting can be taken as following the example of. In this sense, wives be subject to your husbands is a command rooted in following Jesus' example. Christians are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully God, fully man. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. He is a person of no lesser value than God the Father. Jesus' blood is the blood of God, Paul says. The Son of God is a person of no lesser deity or value within the Trinity. But his role in the Trinity is different. Often we're told that God the Son is subject to God the Father. Same word used here. The Son submits willingly to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. There is an equality of persons in the Trinity, but a difference in role and function. This means that there is an equality of personhood, but a difference of role at the very heart of reality itself. God has done this. Equality with distinction exists in God. And as a consequence, it exists in humanity as well. So, where the world bends and mars submission, God glorifies and exalts it. Jesus glorifies it by showing us how submission is intended to be good. Wives, you are doing something very Christ-like when you live out verse 18. When you glorify submission like Jesus glorified it. When you do, your every act then becomes an act of worship. Not to an earthly husband, but to God. The one who calls himself your heavenly husband. I'll tell you, many of you husbands may not see very much of your wives in heaven because they will be so much closer to the throne than you are. Having followed Jesus so much more closely in continual acts of service and loving submission, submission as is fitting in the Lord is eternally meaningful and eternally praiseworthy. Jesus himself has been rewarded for his submission to the Father with heaven's throne. Wives, you will sit down with him on his throne as you follow him in a submission that is fitting in the Lord. That's the first sense in which submission is fitting, but there is another, a second sense. The first sense is that wives act like and follow Jesus in their submission But the second sense of fitting is concerned with the acts themselves. The acts themselves have to be fitting. They have to fit with your loyalty to Jesus. You submit to your husband in those areas which are fitting, which fit with your primary allegiance to Christ. In other words, wives, if your husband ever says, you are no longer to call yourself a Christian, You are no longer to study the Bible. 
you are no longer to go to that church. You say, with God's approval, no. No. God has clearly spoken his will on these things. I am never to renounce Christ. I am told to fill myself with his word. God's declared will is that I never forsake this rhythm of gathering together with his people. When there is a clear choice to be made between being subject to your husband and being subject to Jesus, wives, you know what to do. You choose Jesus. You say, I submit as is fitting in the Lord. And this does not fit. This does not fit with my ultimate allegiance to Christ. Submission to a husband ends where it goes against submitting to Christ. Now, while your husband may never ask you to stop gathering with your church family, he may ask you to do other things that are contrary to God's will. And here again, wives, you are called to say no. You're called to do what is fitting in the Lord. What if, if, you're, what, if you're, what your husband asks of you is dishonest or demeaning or manipulative or illegal, God intends for you to say no. No way, Jose. Being subject to your husband doesn't mean you get to embezzle from your company or cheat, from your t- cheat on your taxes if he asks you to. This submission is not a blank check. This is wives doing what is fitting in the Lord. I'll give you an embarrassing personal example. One that puts me in a bad light before I move on. Uh, Our daughter is in her senior year of high school, and we are filling out college applications. We're working on the first one together. And you're supposed to list out all the incredible, unique things you've done in your educational career thus far. And I suggested she write down that she studied abroad in both England and France. But Lynn, my wife, immediately spoke up, pointing out that that was a very deceptive way to put it. Most people reading study abroad probably assume that we sent her off to something like the Sorbonne, which we did not. In reality, it was a little bit of Kirby Hill Church of England school and a whole lot of homeschooling in England and France. Wives, be subject to your husbands. That doesn't mean you don't call them out on their missteps. You do. Because you are doing what is fitting in the Lord. Now, it takes some spiritual wisdom and understanding to know in every situation what is fitting in the Lord to know how to apply well and wisely God's will to be subject to your husband. But overall, when your husband's will doesn't cross God's will, when it is in keeping with your primary allegiance to Christ, then you can rest assured all your obedience to verse 18 is a praiseworthy act, a praiseworthy act of worship in God's eyes. Wives, do what is fitting in the Lord. That's the word to wives. Next comes the word to husbands. Husbands, do what is loving as the Lord. Husbands, do what is loving 
as the Lord would. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be angry with them. Do not be bitter toward them. But rather, in all your actions, in all your words, be kind. Be loving. This is marriage as God designed it. Full of love and kindness. Empty of anger and bitterness. This is marriage that recaptures Eden's original bliss. When a husband's every act is one of love and every word is full of kindness. Wives, you know it to be true. Husbands, you know it. You can live in a shack, but that shack can feel like a paradise if it is full to the brim with love and kindness. You know that to be true. Husbands, you can have a bit of heaven on earth, a bit of paradise now, if you love your wives well and find no room in your heart for bitterness and anger towards them. Conversely, you can turn your home into a war zone and your bedroom into a battlefield if you ignore God's word and design here. Every outburst of anger, your every hurtful word, husband, is a willful ignoring of God's good design and clear command. This command is for your good, husband. Love your wives. That is a command for your good. God points the way to marital bliss. But your every embittered mood, your every manipulative act are submarining your joy and destroying your happiness. Husband, anger has no place in your marriage. Emotional abuse has no place in this relationship of love. Selfishness, which is the father of anger and abuse, has no place in the relationship with your wife. When the husband is selfish and self-centered, Submission in marriage doesn't work like it's supposed to. By God's design, the husband is meant to love his wife so fully that he willingly puts her needs above his own. He willingly puts her desires above his own. Her needs and her flourishing are set over his when the two come into conflict. When a marriage works like this, according to God's design, the wife need never fear of submitting to a husband who loves her so completely and sacrificially. Because she knows he will always choose her needs over his. Her flourishing over his. His joy is actually found in her flourishing. But when a husband shows himself to be more self-centered than he is sacrificially loving, submitting as a wife becomes a hard and scary thing. You feel compelled to look out for yourself because he's not looking out for you. He's too shit selfish. But this is not 
what we see in Christ. Jesus is the heavenly husband who lays down his rights for his bride. Jesus lays down his very life for his bride's flourishing. You, Christian husband, are called to follow him. You're called to lay down your rights for your bride. Because Jesus laid down his rights for you. You're called to love your bride as the Lord loves you. You're called to do what is loving for your wife as the Lord has done it for you. The husband and wife relationship can be a beautiful dance where the wife gladly submits to his lead and the husband sacrificially loving to put her needs above his own. In that happy design, the wife doesn't have to advocate for her own needs because the husband is always choosing to do what is best for her. The husband doesn't have to manipulate his wife because she is always seeking his good. That's God's complementary design for marriage. And the main thing that so often derails it is our sinful self-centeredness. Isn't that the truth? Now, not all of us here are married, but all of us are someone's child. So, there's a third call here. This third call at some point is addressed to us all. Children, do what is pleasing to the Lord. Children, do what is pleasing to the Lord. Look at verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. All of us once were children. All of us still are someone's child. And as such, all of us are called to honor our father and mother. Now, what honoring your parents looks like might be different at different times in your life. Elementary kids who are in here, you may not think it, but you are actually at the easiest stage right now. Honoring your father and mother most often looks like obeying them. If your parents love you, which they do, they're going to tell you to do things that they think are for your good. And you may not see why. Just why is doing all this yard work good? Why am I digging this hole, Dad? Your father might be trying to teach you something, try to shape your, your work ethic. I don't know. You don't always have to know why. But part of honoring God is obeying your parents when you don't know why. When you can't see the difference it makes. This is well-pleasing to God when we obey a proper authority, even though we can't perceive all the reasons or understand how it all works out. God is a father who calls us to obey him when we don't immediately see what difference our obedience makes. But we're called to trust, to trust his wisdom, and to rest in his love for us. The same can be said for our parents. Even though our parents aren't as wise or as loving as God, they make mistakes. 
their commands may not make sense because they're wrong. They're foolish. This is why the command to obey is to do what is pleasing to the Lord. We obey our earthly parents, even though we don't see all the reasons why. But a child's obedience to a parent's will stops when it contradicts God's will. If a parent says, steal those cigarettes for me, or if a father advises you to misrepresent yourself on a college application, you're to say, no, dad, because your heavenly father's will supersedes your earthly father's will. Even as a child, you have a greater obligation to obey God than to obey your parents. 12-year-old Jesus in the temple taught us that much. Kids, honoring your parents will look like obedience most of the time. But there are also times when honoring them, you honor them by not doing what you're told to do. If that thing is wrong. If it is sin, then you honor them by not allowing them to cause you to stumble. I honor my parents more by not listening to their counsel and commands which distract me from Jesus, which detract from my participation in his mission. Many a parent has been against their child going to the mission field or going into gospel ministry or simply following Jesus. Many parents have been against it. In those cases, we honor our parents more by refusing to listen to them, by refusing to let let them stand between us and God, by refusing to let them stand before God responsible for us not following Jesus in the great global mission he's calling us to. Obeying and honoring our parents will also look different as our parents grow older, as we grow older. When our parents become more frail and needy, we honor them by caring for them in their frailty and doing what's best for them, even if it means making personal sacrifices. When memory fails and disease makes our parents forget themselves, we honor them by treating them as they were and trusting in Christ as they will be again. In Christ, they will one day be more fully themselves than they ever were in this life. We honor our parents as we care for them before God calls them home. And God sees this. He sees it all. This is also well-pleasing to the Lord. Many a missionary has had to come home because of a parent's failing health. This is not a thwarting of God's will, but a following of God's will. Children, do what is pleasing to the Lord in regards to your parents. Now, you've probably looked ahead already 
by now and seen we've got three more groups to cover. And because I stand between you and our Thanksgiving lunch, I'm going to cover these last three very quickly. Okay, very quickly. Fathers, you're up next. Fathers, do what is kind for the Lord. Fathers, do what is kind for the Lord's sake, verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Here is a needed correction, if there ever was one. Fathers, do not be overbearing. Do not be heavy-handed and hard to please. Why? Because you will wound your child. You will cause them to lose heart. And you will negatively shape the way they see the Lord as their father. For the Lord's sake, dads, don't be overbearing or impossible to please. Because that's how your kids will grow up seeing God. You shape their image of a father. So, instead of fatherly disdain, let fatherly kindness fill your heart and all your interactions with your kids. Be the kind of father who teaches your kids to put their hope in God, to put their hope in God's kindness because you, as a father, are kind. Your kids take heart in the Lord instead of lose heart because your kindness continually refreshes their hearts. This Thanksgiving... If you're a father and you've blown it, you've been overbearing, you've been a hard man, it is not too late to ask forgiveness from God and from your children. At the table with the Thanksgiving meal, thank God publicly for being a father who is far more gracious and kind than you. And ask forgiveness for being heavy-handed with your children. Children, this Thanksgiving may be a great time to forgive your father. Whether he asked for it or not. He was a hard man to please. But I imagine his father was harder. You can thank God this Thanksgiving that you know the kindness of God, your father, despite the failings of your earthly father to show it. It isn't too late. It is not too late to forgive. Fathers, it's not too late to change and have that change make a difference in your family. You can get up on Thanksgiving morning like Ebenezer Scrooge got up on Christmas. Thankful for a new day full of opportunities to show kindness to others. Fathers, do what is kind for the Lord. That's point number four. Here's number five. Slaves, do what is right as unto the Lord. Slaves, do what is right as unto the Lord. Look at verse 22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who are merely those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, 
Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now, here again, you could draw a bent line. You could interpret the Bible's words to slaves as the Bible's condoning and supporting the institution of slavery. But that's a false conclusion. That's a bent line. Elsewhere, Paul says, don't be any man's slave. Slaves, you can be free. Be free. But if you can't, know that the Lord sees you, that he is for you, that he identifies with you, and that he will reward your life's work. Careful historians will tell you that Christianity has been solely responsible for some of the greatest moral revolutions the world has ever seen, like the ending of blood sports, the ending of the gladiator games. The Hunger Games were real, y'all, once upon a time, before the gospel opened people's eyes to see it for what it is. Christianity is credited with ending blood sports and with the abolition of slavery. The abolitionists, the Christian abolitionists, their medallion pictured a slave in chains praying upon bended knee with the words, am I not a man and a brother? Both assertions were entirely rooted for those early abolitionists in biblical theology. The Bible speaks to the end of all oppression, the end of all slavery. But the Bible also speaks to people where they are, where they find themselves. God speaks to us where we actually are, not where we wish ourselves to be. And isn't it a precious thing that those with the least power and least prestige in the Roman world get the most words from God here? They also get the most free message here. Slaves be free, but if you can't, know that your life still matters. All your work still matters. If you do it as unto the Lord, not to please men, then there is a lasting reward before you. Your inheritance will be beyond your wildest dreams. In Christ. The slave who is born in chains, who dies in chains, will one day sit with Jesus on the throne of the universe. That is good news with the power to reshape the world. Yes, it is, you might say, but how does it apply to me? Let me dive into that in our last point. Here's our sixth final point. Masters, do what is fair because of the Lord. Masters, do what is fair because you too have a master. Verse 1, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Again, Paul turns the tables. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. The slave, Paul says, is the Lord's freed man. But the master is the Lord's slave. God reverses the roles. He turns the way we see the world on its head. Now, none of us here are slaves. None of us here are masters. But most of us here are employees. Some of us serve bosses that feel like masters. Some of us here are bosses. We are supervisors at work. Most of us have or will have work relationships, either with people over us or with people that we are over. Paul says to us this morning that God sees and cares about these relationships. Do what is fair. Do what is right by those who are under your charge. God cares about injustice in the marketplace. He sees all the corporate backstabbing and shady dealing. Our work and how we do it and the relationships we have there really do matter. So, in your workplace relationships, act like God sees. Act like God will reward. Act like God cares. Because he does. Act like you have a master. Because you do. Now, we've covered a lot of relationships this morning. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, employees, bosses. Everyone can find themselves in there somewhere. I wonder this morning how much of the brokenness and dysfunction around the table this Thanksgiving might be solved if only we listen to what God says here in Colossians 3. Most of it? All of it? I don't know. But I do know that it is not our part this Thanksgiving to look around the table and stew over what everyone else is doing wrong. We must first take the log out of our own eye. In our relationships with others, We must do what is fitting, what is loving, what is pleasing, what is kind, what is right, what is fair. And we will only do that as we own our own failures and gratefully embrace a Savior who welcomes us with open arms to sit at his Thanksgiving table. Father, May we come to you this morning with grateful, thankful hearts. Hearts that are first repenting of all the ways we've marred your design, all the ways we've broken with relationships, all of our sin and selfishness that we have have seen at work in the closest relationships of our lives. Lord, forgive us, but Lord, make us so incredibly grateful that there is redemption to be found in Christ. There is forgiveness to be found in him. There is a reorienting of our hearts and lives that find its motivation in Christ. As he has loved us, may we love in these relationships we've been given. As Christ has submitted himself to the Father for us, may we submit ourselves in these relationships. May we obey as Christ has obeyed for us, all the, all the motivation we need 
May we find it in the gospel, in what a king has done, has come to do for us. Lord, I pray as we gather around the Thanksgiving table now as a church family and this week with our earthly family, may we honor you by living out gospel relationships the way you designed it. Uh, Forgive us where we fail and give us joy for the journey ahead as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.